Hello and welcome to the first episode of my new podcast. Uh, today our guest is Robert Sapolsky, a neuroendocrinologist at Stanford University and primatologist. He studies uh, human behavior and he has written many books on the subject, uh, most recent one, uh, Behave, uh, which is an uh, amazing book. Uh, what I like about uh, this book is how uh, Empirical it is, um, sort of every, literally every statement in this book is uh, based on uh, empirical data and uh, it is not uh, sort of enclosed in any uh, disciplinary buckets as he called it. Uh, thank you, Robert, for coming and participating. Uh, it's a great thank Well, thank you for having me on. Uh, my first question is about your lecture, Cows and uh, Reductions. Uh, living organisms contain similar bifurcating branching systems at completely different levels of organization. Uh, same complexity of branching is found at the level of neurons, arteries, capillaries, lungs. And I would like to ask how does this, how does body make instructions for making these uh, systems on a scale-free level? And uh, how is this related to the um, uh, idea of uh, chaotic systems and the uh, idea of strange attractors versus linear systems and uh, attractors? Well, the whole challenge of bifurcating systems, it's, it's utterly fascinating because, again, as you said, it's a pattern that is playing out on the level of the branches of one dendrite and one single neuron, so at the single cell level, at the vascular level, at the pulmonary level. And it's the same thing that's happening with a tree, with its literal branches. And it's the same thing when you look at a satellite photo of the Nile Delta as it empties into the Mediterranean, splitting into branches like that. And one thing that's clear is you can't possibly code for that system with your genes in a point for point way. Simple example, just to take a neuron, neuron will have about 10,000 dendritic spines, meaning about 10,000 branch points in the course of it snaking outward. And you cannot have each branch point specified by a single gene because we only have about 20,000 genes in our entire genome. You can't be using a path of it just on like the branching in one cell type. So the challenge is how do you get branching? How do you get this repeating pattern in a scale-free way without having to use too many instructions, especially genetic instructions that could then play out on the level of single cells and entire organ systems. And what you get are rules that have to emerge from the biophysical traits of the system, which is to say you have to have some sort of rule which will be applicable whether you are talking about the branches on a dendrite of a single cell or pulmonary branching involving thousands, millions of cells. And what you have to have are laws to the effect of say, if you have a tube, a tube, a dendritic branch, a tube, a blood vessel, a tube, the pulmonary system, um, you have to have some sort of rule of a consistent relationship between the diameter of the tube and the length that it grows. 
and you can have a rule like whatever the diameter is, grow five times that length and then split in two. And at that point, each lumen is half the diameter of the original one. So growing five times the length is one half the length and then it splits again and splits again. So that's great on sort of a informational level, mathematical level of just when do you know how to bifurcate? How do you make that as something that could play out in a single cell and then an entire organ systems? And it's much easier to describe visually, but there's some fantastic models out there for how you get, say, basically the tip of a growing branch, which will have some sort of growth stimulating factor on top. And a critical feature of it is as it presses up against that pocket of growth factor, by pressing up, it splits it in two each half the size of the original, which now triggers growth in that direction, which when those reach the top, split each of those in two, which now has a branch out and branch out. And in each case, you were literally taking a volume of growth encouraging factor and by splitting it in two to either side, the next branch will be half the distance before it splits that in two and half the distance. And these are theoretical models. Amazingly, uh, John von Neumann, who's sort of the founder of cellular automata and computer science, he's the one who actually came up with this model in the 1950s. How could you explain branching patterns in nature? And he made some very explicit predictions about you'd have to have a growth stimulating factor with this or that property and a growth inhibiting factor with a different sort of property. And in the last few years, people have gone and looked and that's exactly what you find in the developing lungs, in the developing vascular system and in neurons doing branching. So it's rules that have to be scale free and thus we're looking at a fractal biology in these cases. Another possible example, which um, I was thinking about, about um, scale-free fractals, is how body on multiple levels of organization acts as sort of selective sieve. It uh, avoids uh, increasing entropy uh, by filtering some things out. For example, like in the kidney, it filters some components of blood out. Uh, and it remains other useful stuff. Uh, individual parts of the neuron on, uh, on the level of nephron, it does the same thing. Uh, membranes in neurons are permissive to uh, some ions uh, and non-permissive to others. Uh, neural networks uh, work as a selective signal enhancement machine. Uh, using the, this process of lateral inhibition. And even at cognitive level, we have uh, attention that uh, picks out certain features of the world at the expense of processing other aspects. Uh, is this the same uh, phenomena uh, as we talked earlier? It is, it is on a conceptual level. It is less literally the same scale-free, but conceptually it's the same thing. Okay, so take a neuron. One of the principles you want to get in any of these biological signaling systems is to maximize signal to noise, to be able to make it very clear when you were starting a signal 
and to make it very clear when it's over with. So one single neuron having a single action potential, how does it do that? It has this mechanism that after the excitation of an action potential, you don't go back to where you started, you go even deeper afterward. You go to a hyper polarized state before recovering. What does that do? That's a way of telling that neuron it's over with. We're absolutely, it is so much over with that action potential that not only have we gone back to where we started, we've gone back even further than that to make the contrast even more dramatic. A way of being very actively silent after you've been very actively loud and excited. So that's playing out on the level of one action potential. Then you look at a neuron that has a stream of action potentials and it will send a collateral branch back onto itself, which will inhibit itself. So you have a whole stream of action potentials, which will then turn the system off a way for the neuron to sharpen instead of one single action potential to sharpen a whole series of them. And then, as you said, you have circuitry that could do lateral inhibition, where a neuron will now be turning off the neighbors to sharpen a signal over space, whereas in the first case, you're sharpening it over time. It's different mechanisms, but it's conceptually exactly the same in all these cases. Signaling systems, it's really important to be very, very loud when you have something to say. And it's very important to be totally silent immediately afterward, because you really want to be able to tell the difference between the two. And at all these levels, again, in a scale-free way, you have these mechanisms for enhancing it. So a very similar feel. Human brains are not unique uh, physiologically. Uh, we talked about action potentials and uh, in every animal action potential works the same way. Um, and it is uses same ions and same uh, ionic pumps and as in other species. But human brain is capable of unique traits like language, culture, abstract thought, uh, and it has uh, sophisticated uh, ways of models the world, and it also has a model of itself as a modeler. Uh, how does human brain achieve so many unique and uh, different things, given that it is the same uh, animal physiology behind it? It's exactly the same. It's, as you said, the same neurotransmitters, the same enzymes, neurons look the same, all of that. How do we wind up being human? For a while, people were immensely excited when the human genome was first being sequenced. And then it was clear within a decade, people will have sequenced the genome for chimps and bonobos and gorillas. Everyone's saying, oh my God, that's where you're gonna find the explanation. It had been known for decades uh, humans and chimps share about 98% of our DNA. And finally, when the chimp genome was sequenced, it was possible to finally compare, ah, so what is that 2% difference? There's gonna be such interesting genes and they're all related to brain function. And people went and looked and almost none of them were related to the brain. Half of the genetic differences between a human and a chimp has to do with olfactory receptors. Chimps have them we've inactivated the genes for them. Like half of the remaining genes that differ are for about like body hair, 
or things about immune specificity or stuff. Where are the genes that differ between humans and chimps that have to do with the brain? And what's incredibly fascinating is there's very, very few of them. But what they do makes perfect sense. The genes that differ are related to how many rounds of cell division goes on in the fetal brain, in a human fetus versus a chimp fetus. And the versions of the genes are ones so that the human fetal brain goes through about three or four times more cell divisions, two times two times two times two. You do that, and what you've just done is the way to turn a chimp into a human is just have their brain divide three or four more times. And if you have enough chimp neurons, we now call it a human brain. If we have eight times as many chimp neurons, you invent a human brain with consciousness and aesthetics and theology and politics and all of that. What it tells us is it's an emergent property. Um, Marx had this wonderful quote, um, with enough quantity, you invent quality. And that's exactly the case. More is different. You throw enough chimp neurons, if you could make a chimp brain eight times as many neurons as they have currently, that chimp would be inventing religions and economic systems and you know all of that. They might be different economic systems than we've come up with, but all there is about the human brain is sheer quantity. And with enough quantity, all sorts of interesting qualities start emerging. Uh, the idea of uh, free will as uh, something independent of uh, causal influences uh, seems impossible and uh, many authors point out that it uh, comes from uh, theology, not from science. It was some kind of justification for theologians to, who wanted to explain away problem of evil. Uh, but uh, does this mean that uh, concept of volition or mental autonomy, uh, autonomy to make decisions in general is completely wrong. Uh, you are, uh, so to say, a uh, diehard determinist as, uh, uh, like Sam Harris and many other thinkers, but there's uh, another camp who uh, thinks that uh, determinism is compatible with um, free will, like Dan Dennett. Uh, uh, they claim that, for example, freedom of will comes in degrees. It's something that evolved and it itself can, uh, it is not independent of causal influence, but it, also, uh, it, it uh, will itself can act as a causative agent. Uh, another position is uh, agnosticism, uh, that uh, we don't know yet if the world is deterministic, uh, because we do, do not have the full picture of the world and it has not been fully described yet. And so the claims that uh, uh, world uh, universe is deterministic at large is uh, metaphysical. Uh, how would you respond to this uh, ideas of compatibilists or people who claim that universe is not deterministic and is uh, like hard determinism only option we have in your uh, opinion? Well, I, I am extremely out in left field with this, along with people like Sam Harris, a few 
other philosophers in terms of absolutely hard determinism and hard incompatibilism. I simply, when I read any philosopher, and unfortunately, when reading a few neuroscientists who should know better, when they say, yes, 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 it's deterministic, we are nothing more than our molecules and atoms and subatomic particles. We are nothing more than the biophysical rules of earth and physical rules of the universe, all of that. Yet, somehow, at the end, you can still squeeze free will out of there. And when you look closely at the arguments they make, they fall in certain categories. Either they decide all we care about is whether somebody intended to do something in this moment or not, and we have no interest in their history. We have no interest in the fact that every moment before that was the outcome of every moment before that moment and within a biological framework. Or they'll say, well, if it looks like there was no free will in this person's action just now, there is free will, but it happened before, it happened before, or it happened in a different part of the brain, or it didn't happen inside the brain, it happens between brains in social interactions. And these are all these styles of arguments um, that people make. And I'm not trying to sound sarcastic, but when you look closely at what every one of these compatibilist philosophers is saying when they say, yes, 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 of course, we are nothing more than molecules. Yes, yes, um, we're existing in the 21st century. We're not medieval alchemists. Yes, yes, but somehow there's free will and the explanation always involves some kind of magic. Like if it's not, you know, it's some kind of, sophistry, it's some kind of logic trick, it's some kind of hand-waving, it's some kind of magic. And an awful lot of these times, what these people are saying is, no, 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 of course we're not saying that something happens for no reason. We're saying it happens for magical reasons. And that's no better. Um, I mean, it's by now, sarcastically, I can, a huge percentage of these papers from these philosophers talking about free will who were trying to incorporate neuroscience, basically their paper comes down to three sentences. First sentence, wow, neuroscience is discovering such interesting things. Second sentence, wow, some of these things are making us question free will and agency and moral responsibility and raises the possibility that we have to rethink everything. Third sentence, no, not really. And like that's, that's basically their stance. They, they could take the logical steps all the way out that you see how fetal environment has something to do with the adult that you are. You see something about childhood nutrition has something to do with it. You see something about this morning's hormone levels, last year's trauma, what smells there are in this room, everything from one second ago to a lifetime ago, all of those are shaping behavior. And somehow they need to pull free will out of that because I think it makes people very, very uncomfortable and on the edge of panic to have to confront the fact that we are nothing more or less than biological organisms. 
Um, yes, I tend to agree with your position because you know, uh, in case of brain tumor, when it uh, makes a person to do something, uh, it is just more obvious cause. But exactly. in normal in normal brain, something else is going on, which makes a person to do something. But um, it is less obvious, but it's still caused by... Uh, exactly. And like, if it's a brain tumor, here's the brain tumor right here, right now. Most of the time, it's not one brain tumor right now. It's 4,000 different influences that started from the point where you were fertilized egg until two minutes ago. And those are much harder to distributed causality is much harder to make sense of for people. It's much easier to decide if there's lots and lots of little things that contribute to the causes, nothing actually caused it to happen. It just happened by magic. It's very tempting to fall for that sort of logical uh, temptation. Uh, next uh, question, my next question is about um, what are neurological, hormonal, evolutionary or other uh, underpinnings of tribalism and uh, nationalism? And uh, have you, if you have observed any interesting things uh, during this pandemic, it is uh, known that uh, pandemics, uh, during pandemics, behavioral new, uh, immune system activates, which makes people more xenophobic or nationalistic. Uh, so what are generally underpinnings of nationalism? And if you have observed any interesting uh, changes in human behavior since pandemic started? Well, mostly depressing examples of behavior. Um, you know, under a lot of circumstances of stress, individual stress, societal stress, it brings out the worst in people. Um, in the United States, our ex-president spent the previous year of the pandemic trying to convince everybody that somehow this was invented by the Chinese. It was their fault. Somehow conspiracy theories, stoking hatreds, that sort of thing. What you find is when people are stressed, not only does their memories get bad, not only does their mood get anxious or depressed, not only does their judgment get bad, but their capacity for empathy gets very bad as well. And I think this is exactly what we've been seeing. What a crisis like this does is take the split that we have in our heads between who counts as us and who counts as them and makes it even more exaggerated. So who counts as an us is closer and closer to home. There's fewer people whose needs you can care about and who counts as a them gets ever larger. What it makes is stoking whether your relationship with your immediate neighbor or one ethnic group with another ethnic group or one nation with another, it just makes the divides that much more dramatic. So I think this has been an era where you know, all throughout the world and certainly lots of places in Eastern Europe where one has seen nationalism taking on a really, really disturbing form. Um, insofar as we are primates, most primates divide the world up between us and them. When it comes to us, 
we could do it on the basis of all sorts of crazy abstractions. How many gods you think there are, whether your system should be capitalist or communist, whether somebody should be allowed to have multiple spouses or just one, I mean, just human specific abstractions, but it is still very primate divisions between us and them. What we do with ideology is find means of making it far uglier and far broader than any chimpanzee could ever make sense of. And at a time like a pandemic, all that does is bring out the worst in us in exactly those ways. Uh, one additional issue I would like to address is inequality. Uh, I have uh, read your uh, paper and uh, also in your book uh, about how this uh, subjective uh, socioeconomic status uh, uh, makes people's health worse. Uh, inequalities uh, much uh, control, much more controversial in Georgia uh, because uh, as an ex-communist uh, uh, country, when you start talking about inequality, unregulated markets start to, to criticize this. Everybody says, oh, you're a communist, you want to go back to Soviet Union. And so it's quite um, uh, different uh, to criticize inequality here. So I think it would be useful for you to uh, explain how uh, inequality, how inequality is uh, bad for uh, health and how it creates, uh, uh, how more equal societies are much better in every parameter. Well, people have known for a long time that socioeconomic status correlates with all sorts of measures of health in the United States you look at the 5% wealthiest and the 5% poorest, and there's a 25 year difference in life expectancy. That's a pretty dramatic thing. And you find that basically in every Westernized society, not as extreme as in the United States, but it's there. So all along, there was a very simple explanation. Aha, poor people cannot afford to go to the doctor, but it's not that because you look at countries with universal health care, and there is that same relationship between economic status and health. So you say, oh, okay, poor people are living next door to toxic waste dumps. They're living in dangerous neighborhoods. They don't have the money to go to health clubs. They don't have the money to buy healthy foods. That's the, and you do really careful studies and lifestyle risk factors and protective factors only explain about one third of the variability. And what you see is exactly the studies you alluded to just now. You look at somebody's objective socioeconomic status and that's a predictor of their health in all sorts of ways. But even better, you ask them about their subjective socioeconomic status. When you compare yourself to other people, how do you feel like you were doing? And somebody's health is better predicted by their subjective sense of their socioeconomic status than their objective. What does this tell us? It's not being poor that's bad for your health, it's feeling poor. And what's the easiest way for a society to make you feel poor? To surround you with all the things that you don't have to show you the inequality in your face every single day out there, all that inequality does is 
take the people who don't have enough and remind them over and over and over again of that. And what you see is insofar as poverty is a predictor of poor health, it is statistically mediated by subjectively feeling poor, which is statistically mediated by the degree of income inequality surrounding someone. And what you then see is what does a lot of income inequality do? It makes for a society in which people don't trust each other, in which people feel like they don't have peers, in which people feel like they have no voice, they have no efficacy. Uh, sociologists have this term social capital, the amount of trust, the amount of emotional reserves that people have in depending on each other. When societies are unequal, social capital goes down the drain, it disappears, and that's the driving force on the poor health. And the best demonstration of that is when you look at what diseases are most sensitive to socioeconomic status, inequality, so on, it's the diseases that are most centrally sensitive to stress. It's the stress-related diseases that get worse in an unequal society. And maybe the last point, at least in the United States, you could go all day long telling people about how unfair this is for the poor, how unfair it is, and the people in charge may or may not care in the slightest. Something that should make everyone, even in the ruling class, sit up is when inequality increases, everybody's health gets worse. The poor's health gets much, much worse. The middle class, moderately worse, but even the wealthy, their health gets a little bit worse as inequality goes up. Why is that? Because they have to be more and more stressed about trying to keep the outside world away from them. They have to put that much more effort into building walls between them and the outside world, and that's stressful in and of itself. So even if you don't care about the poor, if you only care about the wealthy, inequality isn't good for the wealthy's health either. Uh, thank you, that is very interesting. Um, I think that's all uh, I don't... Good. Well, I'm glad we got to talk and uh, good luck dealing with the uh, growing inequity where you are. Yeah, you, you guys have had a complicated last 30 years. Yeah. Yeah, currently we're in a political crisis which uh, seems to be resolving because you know, parties signed some agreement, the European Union tried to uh, reduce polarization, but it's quite, uh, still quite complicated uh, uh, situation, yeah. Well, good luck there. Okay, good to talk with you. It was very interesting, thank you very much. Uh, sure. I will let you know, know when I'm published. Great, okay, thank you, take care. Goodbye.